mention that um, next week, uh, David Nakla, who is um, kind of our denominational head of diaconal ministries and what have you, I mean, it, you know, we, we support the ministry of our denomination. He's in charge of a lot of things. One of them is like disaster relief. And so if you're interested, well, next week during Q&A time, he'll be here. He and his family are going to come and worship with us next week. And I would really strongly encourage everybody, if, even if you don't normally come to the question and answer time, to come to that, to hear you know, how the donations that you make are being affected in terms of the ministry throughout the nation and throughout the world. And so I just want to really encourage you to be here next week during the Q&A time or the adult Sunday school time to participate in that. All right, so I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20. Revelation 14, 14 through 20, here now the word of God. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are looking this morning at some very intense words. And we recognize that, in some sense, there is a symbolic nature of these words, but we also realize that so often the reality is far more intense than the symbolization that is used to convey it. We do pray, Father, that as we look at these things, we would recognize what this tells us about who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do. We pray as we look at these words, we would come to understand your call in our lives, that you're not merely telling us these things for us to observe without being intent, without recognizing that there is very much a call. So help us to be wise as we examine these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I asked you to... Describe what you thought was the greatest divisive moment in human history. How would you respond? What, what is the greatest divisive moment in human history? We might think of things like world wars, earthquakes, famines. We might think of various coup d'etats, different powers taking over big nations and what have you. We look at different events throughout the course of history which radically alter the economic and political landscape of the world in which we live. But I would argue at the very top, 
even of the list of the biggest skeptics of the Christian faith, we have to look back on that moment when history itself was renamed. We look back upon history as either B.C. or A.D., before Christ, or Anno Domini, the year of the Lord, talking of the birth, the life of Christ, our very date. And when I say our, I mean the entire world acknowledges that division between B.C. and A.D., even though I think we have tried to diminish the significance by the abbreviations B.C.E. and C.E., which is kind of of late. Of course, if you ask the tour guide what event marked B.C.E. from C.E., plan on getting a dirty look. Friends, Jesus Christ, no doubt, is the most divisive figure in human history. The world would call it B.C. and A.D., but the scriptures refer to this event, this shift, as Old Covenant to New Covenant. The the church views this as we've moved from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And this would be no easy transition. We just turn a page. We, you know, we go from Malachi to Matthew. But that would be no easy transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. John the Baptist, who is kind of the opening figure in this New Covenant, defined this transition in the most extreme terms. He arrives on the scene and he says, the axe is at the root of the tree. You get the image there, right? It's, it is about to hit. His winnowing fork or his winnowing fan is in his hand. He's, it's this idea that you're going to take the grain and throw it in the air. And you're going to separate the wheat from the chaff. That language informs us of the imminent nature of this judgment. John the Baptist is saying, something is about to happen. We read in Matthew 3.12, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, I would submit to you that the revelation, especially the verses that we're looking at this morning, speaks of what John is saying here. This idea of gathering the wheat and then burning up the chaff is what we see not only in Revelation, but especially in the verses that we're looking at this morning. Jesus himself did not shrink back from announcing, by the way, his own divisiveness. Speaking of our most intimate relationships, father, son, mother, daughter, he taught in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Even as I preach this, I kind of feel like if I were sitting in your seats, I might be asking, what in the world are you trying to accomplish here, Pastor Paul? Speaking of divisiveness, I mean, we generally look at divisiveness as kind of a negative thing. We don't want to be unnecessarily divisive. And I would also argue this, though what we read in Matthew 10.34 is not inconsistent with the worship we see from the heavenly host. You know, we read this oftentimes at Christmas and people put it on their lawns. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace 
goodwill toward men. It seems to be a contradiction, but I would argue that it's not a contradiction at all. One flows into the other. Because any analysis of that which is worthwhile will reveal that true peace often requires division. And a lack of willingness to be divisive. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that we should seek to be divisive for no reason at all. I'm not saying, you know, go to your events and be as divisive as you possibly can be. But oftentimes you know this, that your willingness to speak the truth will cause division. I mean, it's often attributed to Edmund Burke. Some people say it was John Stuart Mill. I'm not sure who the quote is. But the quote goes like this, all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. So this idea that I'm going to say nothing for the sake of not being divisive is an unhealthy disposition. It will, ne- it will inevitably, our silence will inevitably yield ground to that which is false and that which is destructive. We need to be willing to engage Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. Interestingly enough, earlier in the same book, he wrote against unnecessary factions, factions that were based upon you know, personalities and people, but there's a type of faction that he thought was necessary. Paul writes, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Machen put it this way, in the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. This division that we read of in Christ wasn't something new when we got to the New Covenant or the New Testament. It was anticipated throughout the entire Old Testament that there would be a conflict that Jesus would walk into the middle of. Perhaps most notably, we see in the 14th chapter of Zechariah, many people look at this chapter as referring to the end of the world. But I don't think the context allows Zechariah chapter 14 to be speaking about the end of the world. If you read that chapter, and we're not going to go through the whole chapter, but Zechariah speaks of a day when, quote, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Now, if if you have even a cursory understanding of your Bible, what are we talking about when we talk about the living waters? It's Christ flowing from Jerusalem. So we see Christ coming. I think that's the context of Zechariah. And then he writes of, quote, his feet standing on the Mount of Olives and splitting that mountain in two. See, you've got this event going on in Zechariah, right? Living water showing up, putting his feet on the Mount of Olives, and that mountain splitting in two. I don't think he's talking about geological alterations. I don't think he's talking about some type of earthquake here. I think what he's talking about is the beginning of that great division. Interestingly enough, all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a record of Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, giving his discourse. They call it the Olivet Discourse. 
it is generally recognized, no matter what your positions are in terms of end times, that the Olivet Discourse is a sort of abbreviated revelation. In our passage today, we read of the work of Christ in that great division, the end of which, and I couldn't help having you look at this verse because of my post-millennial proclivities, but in that passage in Zechariah, it finally ends up, it crescendos with these words, you know, as a result of this division, as a result of him standing on the Mount of Olives, as a result of that mountain splitting in two different directions, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name one. Well, let's take a look now how that relates to the passage before us. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Well, that's not, I think, terribly unclear. It is almost universally agreed, not entirely, but almost universally agreed, that the Son of Man in this passage is Christ. But it is about there that all the agreement ends and we shake hands and we return to our corners. This idea of this white cloud, and we've discussed it in greater detail earlier, cloud, this idea of coming on a cloud in, in Scripture indicates some type of judgment. Now, that might be the final judgment, or coming on a cloud could also be judgments throughout history. In Isaiah chapter 19, God says, I'm coming on a cloud, and it's God raising up one nation to judge another nation. This idea of the cloud, or or this idea of the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ, just for those of you who haven't been following this whole series, can mean the second coming, an actual physical, literal second coming, which is the end of history, the judgment day. Or it can mean the coming of the Spirit, John 14, 18, my Spirit will come. It can mean, as I've always already pointed out, God coming in some type of historical judgment. It can mean coming to fellowship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He opens the door, I will come, Jesus says. I don't think that's the second coming. Or it could be coming to remove the lampstand from the church. You know, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. There's all sorts of things the coming of Christ can mean. Now, again, I'm not going to revisit all the arguments here as to why this reference to the coming on a cloud is the judgment that would end the old covenant. I would argue that's what it is. Him coming on a cloud here is is the cataclysmic end of the old covenant. So I'm not going to... We've talked about this in detail before, so I'm not going to go into detail. But I will say a couple of things. And if, and if you're interested, you can go to our website, and all the sermons are there, and you can look at it um, ad nauseum if you'd like. But I will say this. In Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, we see Jesus referring to himself as coming in a cloud. Luke 21, 27. Now, a mere five verses later, in Luke 21, 32, he says this. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. 
So in the context of Jesus saying, I'm coming on a cloud, just a few verses later, in the same sermon, he says, this generation shall not pass away until all of these things have taken place. We see that here, and we see that in Matthew 24, 34 as well. In his trial, Jesus is put under oath to testify if he is the Christ. So the high priest is interrogating him. Tell us, are you the Christ? I put you under oath. Responding to the high priest in this cross-examination, Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 64, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let me just ask you, what is the most natural understanding of a verse like that? Jesus is talking to the high priest in the first century, and he's saying, you will see me coming on the clouds in judgment. All this to say, at least for now, not to go any further into it, that there will be a second coming. There will be a judgment day at the end of history. But the context here seems to indicate a soon judgment. Revelation 1.1 and 1.3 gives us the historical context, that which will soon take place. Now, let me just say this, though, here. This is not to say that we have nothing to learn about the final judgment in these verses. It's not as if, when we look at these verses, it's totally different than the way we might understand the final judgment. For example, when we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, that was not the final resurrection. But when I see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, it tells me a great deal about the power of Christ. And it tells me a great deal about the resurrection itself. So when we learn about these events that God does throughout the course of history, we learn more about the God who will in fact bring to pass things that will happen at the end of history. Moving on, on Christ's head in this passage is a golden crown. So he's coming and he's got on his head a golden crown. Now I don't want to dig too deeply here. But in Scripture, there are two types of crowns. There's a diadem, which is generally associated with um, being a king, some type of imperial dignity. The devil uses that crown, we see in Revelation 12 and 13, when he is seeking to usurp the authority of God in a very economic and political context. He has seven heads, ten horns, Remember this? And seven diadems. So he's kind of going, I'm in charge. I'm the king. I'm the ruler. Follow me. Although, and we all get there in chapter 19, ultimately Jesus is the one wearing the many diadems. So you have the temporary nature of the enemy usurping the authority of God, but ultimately it is Christ who will bring... in full force, his office as king of kings. But the other crown is Stephanos. Now, this type of crown is the crown of victory. It's the crown of triumph. It's the kind of crown that you want to battle, and you'd put it on the head of the general who won that battle, or maybe if you won the Olympic Games, you know, you'd wear that type of wreath. That's the crown, by the way. The Stephanos is the crown in this current passage. It's the victory of the cross the victory of the resurrection in its bursting magnitude. That's what's taking place here. 
But let me just stop because I want us to bear in mind a thought, at least as I was studying this, that came to the fore, at least of my thinking, that before Christ bore this victorious crown, he bore another crown. Now, I'm mentioning this because I think we need to have a I think we need to have a very balanced understanding of this. If you're sharing what you're learning here with your friends, one of the big criticisms against at least the way I understand the Revelation and kind of a post-millennial understanding is, you know, you've got to be careful, Pastor Paul. He's into triumphalism. And part of me is, you know, for the life of me, I'm like, is there something bad with that? Like, is there something wrong with a triumph? Yet I understand, I mean, I understand the criticism that we, you know, we're not a name it, claim it, word faith, you know, believe in Jesus and everything's going to be fine, you know, as, as Mike and, you know, in his prayer clearly indicates, you know, you've got these struggles in this world. And we shouldn't think that the Christian faith is like this automatic victory. And so I look at this crown that Jesus is wearing, but there's another place in Scripture where that same word, Stephanos, is used in terms of that crown. We see it in John 19, verses 1 through 3. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown. And you see, I put it in there in parentheses, the Stephanos of thorns, and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. So before Christ wore that crown, of victory that we're reading of this morning, he wore another crown, a crown of humiliation. We need to take, I think, to heart that the call of the Christian as we ponder a passage such as this is that the gospel in its soul-redeeming, earth-renovating power is to be presented by us as we imitate Christ in his humility. We've got to beware of this uh, inherent arrogance that may accompany this idea that the gospel will reign triumphant. Christ will reign triumphant. All the earth will gather and worship him. That we should not allow a seed of arrogance to come into our hearts and our souls when we find ourselves part of this magnificent plan of this great commission, Peter instructs us that Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2.23, 2, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. We need to be careful. We need to follow the example of Christ in his humility in terms of the success of the gospel. However, it would appear in this very passage, we have an example of, quote, him who judges righteously. So Jesus committed himself into the hands of him who judges righteously, and now we're in a passage where God is, in fact, judging righteously. Jesus has a sickle. A sickle is an implement of harvest. 
We read in verses 15 and 16, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. What is, what is he talking about here? What is this event? I don't think it would be entirely unnatural to read those words as if it's the final day of judgment. And no doubt, as I had indicated a moment ago, we can learn of God's final judgment from a passage like this. This is a God who judges. Yet the context, both in Revelation and in all four Gospels, reads of an imminent, soon-coming, looming reaping. We read in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, and notice the language. Then, talking about Jesus here, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So we've got this harvest that's about to take place. Maybe more clear in John 4, 35 and 36. Do you not say to yourselves, there are yet four months, then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Right? They're ready to be harvested. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. So you've got this judgment coming. You've got this tumultuous event that's about to take place. Remember this, that as we're reading chapter 14, chapter 14 is on the throes of the end of chapter 13, where we read, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. We have to understand the historical context of what we're reading about here. It should not be surprising to any of us that the Revelation speaks of, of great, horrible, terrible, and era-shifting devastations. Like I said earlier, it is, it is the most divisive time, it is the most divisive moment in all of human history. And many would die. Many, even you, both the oppressed and the oppressors. I mean, I don't want to get all overly graphic here, but it, there was a bloodbath going on in the first century that we don't often see when we kind of look at normal history books and what have you, unless you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, unless you start reading of what took place in the, during the Jewish wars and this era in history. But we see God's judgment ending the Old Covenant and beginning the New. And this is a time of great devastation. But... The harvesting of those who belong to Christ, which I believe these verses are speaking of, though outwardly looking very similar to those who had taken the mark, those who were following the world, following the beast and what have you, outwardly they look the same. As a matter of fact, even some people disagree on what I'm about to tell you. Some people say, well, this is all the judgment of the wicked. I don't think it is. But outwardly it looks the same. But Inwardly, eternally, it is significantly different. 
You see, here's something we need to grasp a little bit, that God's judgments in history, and I've shared this with people, I don't, it seems clear to me, and if it's not clear to you, please come to Q&A and ask me to clarify. God's judgments in history, and by a judgment in history, we're talking here about the destruction of the temple, the judgment of Rome, God raising up armies to go, you're done, and so forth. God's judgments in history are followed immediately by his judgment in eternity. Okay? I mean, that's, that's what's clear to me, but I'm not sure if it's clear to everybody. That a judgment in history, if God is saying, you deserve this judgment, let me, let me put it this way. Say there's an unrepentant murderer, and God's judgment is that they're put to death. That's God's judgment in history. But the moment he dies, there's another judgment, a greater judgment. As it is appointed, we read in Hebrews, for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now, you know, I'm not going to get into the fact that there is a final judgment. And again, if you're interested in that, and what about the final resurrection? We can talk about that during Q&A. But I will say this, that even though outwardly these things look the same, people die here, people die there, the eternal judgment for those who are in Christ is a judgment of peace and a judgment of rest. Hebrews 4.9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. So you see, the reaping of the faithful which I think we should understand verses 14 through 16, is truly a glorious event. He, he's, he's taking them home. You know, the psalmist writes, precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his children. You know, I mean, I, I've shared this in memorial services a lot. You know, I, my wife and I, we have four kids. You know, they're mostly grown up now, but when, there was a time when they were little. And I remember... Um, you know, my two favorite times of the day were when they woke up and when they went to bed. But when they'd go to sleep, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you're the dad, you know, you, you're supposed to check the locks on the doors and you walk in, make sure all the kids are okay, and, you know, and they're, they're there sleeping. They're in their beds sleeping. All right? It's safe. But there's only one word to describe that, and you all know what the word is. It's precious. Because they're here. They're mine. I got them covered. And this is, I think, when we read that from the psalmist, precious in the eyes are the death of his saints. He's like, they're with me. I've got them forever. Friends, those who trust in Christ, I think, will know in a very unvarnished depth the words of Solomon, these words so counterintuitive in terms of human thought, but so biblical nonetheless. When the wisest man who ever lived wrote, and the day of death better than the day of one's birth. I pray that'll be true for all of us, that the day of our death will be superior to the day of our birth. And yet we have to continue in the passage because the same cannot be said for those who continue in their rebellion. Verses 14 or 17 through 20 Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, 
And another angel came out of the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. I mean, there's no easy way to make this kind of a feel-good sermon when, you, when God gives you a passage like this. I mean, these, you know, that's the famous book and movie, these are the grapes of wrath. After the harvest comes the vintage. Actually, agriculturally speaking, this was the order in first century Israel. There would be, there would be the harvest and then there would be the vintage. And I would argue here that the vintage is the judgment here of the wicked. It is a judgment against those who take rank against Christ. It is a judgment of those who take rank against the truth. It's a, a judgment against those who take rank against the message of redemption. God has determined that good news will go out. He, he has employed us to be the people who would bring that good news. But there would be those who oppose it. And God had made a promise that he would stop those who would oppose the truth. Now we have this angel here who had the power over fire. Who is that and what is that? I would argue that that is the angel mentioned in chapter 8 who takes, quote, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints filled with the fire from the altar. So what we have here is this angel, and if you you go back to that passage, and, and he takes all of that and he throws it upon the earth, what you have is the, is the martyred saints praying, How long, O Lord, before you avenge those who have died? And the prayers go up, and with the incense, the incense, the angel has the power over that fire and brings those prayers, as it were, as a judgment back down to the earth. And I think that's what we're looking at here. In all of this, though, we have to recognize something that is perspicuous throughout all of Scripture. Again, this is not something that we just discover when we get to the Revelation. And that is that God had made a promise. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That we, the first time the gospel is presented, God speaking to the serpent, saying there's going to be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And, and yours will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This great promise that evil is not going to win. Evil will not prevail. And then God gets very specific in terms of the seed through which that promise would come. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he's like, through your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we are, we're not confused about these, this genealogy that leads to Christ, but he makes with that this wonderful promise. So not only will the seed come through Abraham, but I'm going to protect my covenant people. Verse 3 of chapter 12 of Genesis, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
I mean, Revelation is a picture of God keeping his promise. They no doubt thought the Christian faith is over. We'll never make it. We're not going to get through the first century. But there's this promise that God has made. That no matter how powerful those are, those kings that take rank against the Lord's anointed, the Lord will dash them. I mean, simply put, God is not going to let evil win. The stone, going back to Daniel, the stone cut without hands, who is Christ, would fall upon the image when? During the era of Rome. If you're, those of you who haven't been following along, there's this dream, right, in Daniel. And you've got this image, this big image that represents four nations. Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire. And during the Roman Empire, the stone, cut without hands, falls upon the image. That's what's happening here. Christ is kind of going, all right, I'm the stone without hands, and this evil empire is coming to an end. In Daniel, it's put this way, this, this kingdom will become like chaff from the threshing floors, right? The, the windowing fork, it's going to become, it's a separation of the wheat from the chaff. While the kingdom of Christ, we read, all the way back in Daniel, becomes a great mountain and does what? Fills the whole earth. You know, Mike, in his wonderful prayer, he's given that wonderful image, you know, of the, the sun, right? Raising, you know, the earth rotating, however you want to put it, right? And you've got this idea here that the kingdom of God just continues. It continues Lord's Day after Lord's Day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia. And what do we read in Daniel in the call to worship? It is a kingdom that what? Will have no end. And the readers, the original readers, and us with them should take great encouragement in the knowledge that we're part of that kingdom that has no end. God is, you know, it's been 2,600 years or so since Daniel wrote that, and here we are. Let me tell you, Babylon is gone. Greek, Greece is there, but it's not an empire, right? The Medo-Persians, Rome is a dot, but the kingdom of God has continued to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That judgment we read in this passage was trampled outside the city. And it's been suggested, I think with some merit, that that indicates that these people would bear their own reproaches. Rather than trusting in Christ, who as we read in Hebrews 13, 12, suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. In other words, you know, this curse happening outside the gate, it's either going to be bore by Christ or it's going to be bore by you. And then we get into the 1,600 furlongs. I am not unacquainted with that language. My dad spent a lot of time at the track. When I think of the furlongs, you know, I just think of going to Hollywood Park with my dad. All right, because that's the way they measure it. And it's funny, I used to... We didn't go many places as a kid, just so you know. 
We weren't the kind of family that went to Yosemite and Big Bear and stuff like that. People asked me, well, what parks have you been to? I'm like, Hollywood Park. <laughs> there are a lot of guesses as to this distance here, and I'm not going to get into the detail here. Some, some say, you know, it, it, six, you know, 1,600 furlongs is about 184 miles. Some say, well, it's the, it's the length of Palestine, so maybe it's just the whole area. Others say that it's the square of four, which according to the Bible is the, the number of the earth. So you get six, four, by, four times four would be 16, times the square of 10, which according to the scriptures is the number of completion. So you get 1,600. I don't know. I know this. It's a lot. I mean, the, the picture they're trying to paint here is the blood up to the bridle of the horse. And like I said, there's no neat, clean, and easy way to get through this. What the church needed to understand was that times, tough times were coming. And they needed to be, remain faithful in the midst of these difficulties. We, we tend, when things get hard and difficult, we tend to gravitate to that which we're most comfortable with. For a lot of the early Christians, especially the Jewish Christians, they were more comfortable with Judaism than they were with Christianity. That's why Hebrews was written, because many of the Jewish Christians were going, this is getting tough, I want to go back to my comfort food, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I do that when I, you know, when I had, when I've been sick or I've been, you know, a lot on my mind and all of a sudden I find myself buying a Big Mac meal. Because it's comfortable and nutritious. <laughs> but we, you know, we tend to kind of go, where am I going to find some comfort here? And John is writing this by the Holy Spirit, kind of going, this is going to be, these are going to be tough times. And you need to remain faithful. It's not going to be easy. Are you up for the fight? Are you up for the contest? You know, are you just going to remain silent? I uh, was tempted to um, illustrate my point. And now that I've said what I just said, I guess I must do this. With this idea of where I feel sometimes we're going as a culture. I, there was a man named H.G. Wells. Many of you probably have heard of him. He was a writer from England in the late 19th, early 20th century. He wrote a lot of a lot of books. He wrote a book called The Time Machine. It was made into a couple of movies. I think, weren't you in one of those movies? Yeah. One of our members was in one of those movies. And um, it, was, it was a story, you know, it was an allegory. People, a lot of people don't realize it was an allegory about um, the British elite and how they oppressed the British poor. And... Um, and now we're way in the future. He goes way into the future. It's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the future. And there are these people called the Eloi. And they are apparently, according to H.G. Wells, the um, evolutionary descendants of the British elite. And um, they have become very simple Small, unintelligent, uncurious, um, weak, 
but kind of happy people with no adversity at all, but no courage, no ambition. They're just kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to, I used to be kind of a hippie, so I don't want to undo, I don't want to say, but kind of like hippies, you know, and, but they, they have no sense of who they are or what they should be doing, and they, they try to convey that in, you know, in this drama where, you know, one girl's about to drown, and, you know, and she's like, save me, save me, she's in a river, and they won't even, re- they, won't, they see no reason to save somebody. She's like, help me, and they're like, they don't even put their hand in to help her, and they're trying to convey to us that these are people who just got, they have no sense of purpose. They're just kind of like, they're fed, they're clothed, they're sheltered, they don't know where it comes from, and they seem to be moderately happy being taken care of. And they are the evolutionary descendants of the elite. But then you've got these other people. They're called Morlocks. Weren't you a Morlock? Yeah. (laughs) The Morlocks are the evolutionary descendants of the poor, of the working class. And um, they're conveyed in this movie as the ones who really ultimately are providing now for the Eloi. So you look at the movie and you're like, hey, Eloi, you know, they don't fight. They're not ambitious. They're not willing. The, division, the idea of being divisive isn't even part. There's a scene where they have books. They don't read the books. Matter of fact, you pick the books up and they just crumble. There's one downside of being an Eloi, though. And that is, at night, the Morlocks eat you. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It was written like 100 years ago. So, But that, I feel like that's... That's a direction I feel that we have taken. We, we have become passive. We have become unambitious. We have become uncritical. We're not curious. We're not willing to, to engage, and, and we want to be taken care of. And as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm provided for, don't worry about the next generation. And I think that's the mentality. It's like, I just need to be comfortable and John is writing, going, look, at you're not going to be comfortable. Things are going to be difficult. But you need to remain faithful. I, I, I'm, you know, as I look through Revelation, and, and we are talking about this before church today, because I'm like, where are we going to go when Revelation is done? Because as much as, you know, we've been in it for a long time, we're moving rapidly, and we're going to get through with Revelation. And part of me, in my next series, I really want to do something that's more disciplined, you know, what do we do as, when we wake up as a Christian? Something that's more microcosmic than macrocosmic. Something that's more like, you know, what are my devotions? What should they look like? What should my life look like? And these types of things. But I think these things fold into one another because the application of all of this, this great victory that we're reading of in the Revelation, is for you and for me to do a couple of things. One is to praise God that he has in fact promised that good will win. It should ameliorate our worship. When we, when, we, when we begin to sing that we are singing to a God who at great expense, the price of his own son, assured that, there, that, that victory would in fact take place. First and foremost, I would say that, is, that should be the primary application of any sermon ever given. Well, how wonderful is this God? that we are serving. But the other is, what fruit does this produce in my life? How then should I live? This idea that 
I must, through the ordinary means that God has provided, through prayer, through the, through the scriptures, through the sacraments, through fellowship, through our willingness to interact with one another in a godly way, bear fruit to this end that we might be equipped for the battle that the scriptures say inevitably comes to those who are faithful. That, I think, is the message that John is giving to those churches. You need to overcome. You need to persevere. It's going to get hard, but you need to stay the course. You need to be faithful to the very end. You need to keep the faith. And it concerns me. And I wonder myself sometimes when we read about the, um, the attrition within today's church. What were they promised when they walked in? Because John's readers are not promised ease. They are promised a fight. But they are also promised that they'll be equipped. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would take to heart the message of the revelation we pray, Father, that in fact, that we would ever praise your name, that you've not left, uh, left us at the mercy of that which is dark, of that which is evil, of the enemy of the souls of men, that truly, through Christ, that triumph has been won. And we do pray, Father, that in light of that, we would ever seek to persevere, be faithful, to be good stewards of that which has been entrusted to us, and that is the message of the gospel that life-changing, soul-changing, globally transforming message that Jesus, in fact, is the victor, and we pray in his name. Amen.